Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. Today, I am speaking to an amazing individual. If there's somebody I look to in the community, if I'm having a bad day or having some health challenges, I think about Jessie Fries. She is amazing. She was on dialysis at nine months old, and she's on the show with us today because she's going to tell us her story. So welcome to the show, Jessie. Thank you for having me. Well, you definitely have a story of overcoming adversity and always being upbeat and looking for the positive side. So can you just give a little synopsis of, you know, when you started dialysis up until your recent transplant? Sure. Um, I was actually 11 months old when I was diagnosed with atypical HUS, and um, I was a year old when my native kidneys were removed, and that's pretty much when my journey on dialysis began. So I was a pretty young child when I started with dialysis. Were you on peritoneal or hemo? I started with peritoneal at the one-year mark, and then um, after that, I began uh, hemo. So hemo was begun at about, I want to say, three or four years old or before that. And so... You were on dialysis for a very long time because the transplant really wasn't an option up until recently, right? Well, I had one transplant uh, back in 1999. It was only worth nine days, so I only had a transplant for nine days. Uh, Due to the disease, it destroyed the kidney, and of course, they didn't know how to treat me back in 1999 with atypical HUS, so I ended up being off the list for 10 years after that. And after the 10-year mark was up, they asked me to go ahead and get reevaluated. Um, and so now I'm one year post-transplant. As of August 19th of 2017, that's when I received the kidney, the second kidney of my life. So tell us a little bit about what that process was like because you had to be treated, right? They have uh, medical technology improved where they can treat your reoccurring illness for atypical HUS. That's correct. Um, With atypical HUS, there's a drug called agalumazab, which is actually called Solaris, if people know that name better. Uh, And this drug is given before, during, and after transplant surgery. So Pretty much when I was called into Johns Hopkins for my, you know, pre-op, you know, they had to do all the blood work, make sure everything was all set and good, they went ahead and gave me my first infusion of the Solaris. After that, it was shortened, and the dose remained pretty much the same. So I get the same adult dose as anybody else, pretty much. I get 1,200 milligrams. Um, I'm very... Tiny, if you can, you've seen me in person. I'm very tiny. I'm about the size of a 11 year old. Um, and since I've been living with this disease for so long, they figure a bigger dose is better for my outcome. Okay. And so, for the listeners, uh, how many years were you on dialysis? I was on dialysis for 28 and a half, almost 29 years. It's. 
It's just astounding. And because I want to jump to the transplant side of your life, but I really want to capture when you were on dialysis, you went to school, you became a vet tech, you just did everything that everybody else did. And you love animals like I love animals. So we have that in common. And we also wear the same size shoe. So we have two things in common. (laughs) Yes, um, I went to school twice, actually. I became a vet tech. Uh, I graduated with a bachelor's degree in 2011. This occurred while I was on dialysis. I went to school. I did what I had to do, and I would go to dialysis afterwards. Um, And then I received my New York State license as a vet tech. I took the test. I had to rearrange dialysis for that because it was going to be an all-day affair. Ended up passing first try have worked as a vet tech here and there uh but eventually i wasn't able to sustain steady employment and so i decided to go back to school to become a medical assistant and now am certified as a medical assistant well it must have been tough to deal with animals and have to carry them and lift them and some of the things that vet techs do and also emotionally i I, uh, it's probably very rewarding, but also can be very emotional. It can be when it comes to the point, you probably know from personal experience with the point of deciding when to do euthanasia. Vet techs are the ones that are there. We are the first line of defense for these animals. We place the IVs and we draw blood on them. We do the lab tests on these animals. We also occasionally give vaccines. We assist the veterinarian during surgery, so behind the scenes, not a lot of people notice that these vet techs are behind the scenes. We're actually monitoring the vital signs of these pets. We're monitoring their recovery. We give the pre-meds, all that good stuff. We intubate and extubate these animals. Listing them, depending on how big they are, it can be quite difficult, Um, but as long as you have a partner with you, it can be quite simple. Well, it's amazing. How did your um, medical experience of being a a patient for so long play into being a vet tech and a medical tech? Um, That's a good question. Actually, personal experience from being a patient actually came into play. It actually had been a benefit knowing, okay, so I know what it's like to be poked. So my goal when I'm poking an animal or a human, say I'm getting a blood sample, my goal is to only poke them one time and one time only. So they're not going through torture. They're not getting, you know, painful while we're doing this. Um, That's the goal I have. And the empathetic level is actually on the higher level than, say, somebody else. So, you know, having a personal experience being on dialysis for almost 29 years, you learn a little bit more of empathy towards others. You learn to stand your ground. You learn a little bit of wisdom you learn how to advise people on things. Uh, as an MA, same thing. It's beneficial. You can talk to people a little differently and people can approach you and you know how to handle that particular situation. It, you know, it depends on the situation, though, of course. So, Jesse, let's move on to getting a, the call for your transplant. So, tell us what was that like and what were you feeling? Um, honestly, I didn't think I would get it as soon as I did. I was told, oh, you're going to be waiting another year, you know, prepare for this, prepare for that. I wasn't even packed to go. So, I again, we weren't expecting 
within probably about four months of being listed on the deceased donor list that I would get a call within four months. We were being told one year, one to two years is what they were telling me. So I was actually volunteering at our local animal shelter in the wildlife department. I had just finished doing a task. Funny thing is I got a phone call from a number that I didn't recognize. I didn't catch it right away. I didn't answer it right away. So I tried calling them again. They said, text me. So I texted them. And I said, who is this? They said, go ahead and call us back real quick. I said, okay. So the girl on the other end, she says, I'm calling from Johns Hopkins, and I have some news for you. I said, okay, what sort of news do you have for me? And she goes, well, we got a kidney for you. I said, are you serious? She goes, no, I'm not joking. <laughs> so I go, okay. I said, you know, I had to ask her questions. She told me that it was a high-risk kidney. So, of course, I didn't know what that meant at that point. You know, it's been a long time since I've been transplanted. So she goes, well, high-risk meant that the donor went through something that could have been a danger to me. So my donor was actually a drug user and passed away from a drug overdose, in other words, is what they told me. So then they said, you can go ahead and reject reject the the offer, but your top priority for it, your perfect match for it. So at that time, I also had hep C, so that's the other concern they had. But other than that, I asked the age range of the person, and I said, you know what? I'm not refusing. I'm going to go ahead with it. I said, when do you need me there? And they told me when. Went ahead, I got a hold of my parents, and I said, look, we need to get to Baltimore real quick. So, (laughs) again. How old was the donor, may I ask? How old was the donor? The age range was between 25 and 35 years of age is what they told me. So sad. I know there's yeah. a stu- there's an article that came out today that shows that the transplant list is declining a little bit because of the drug overdoses. You can it, believe it's that. It's sad to think sad. about. So it sad. is sad to think about. Um, and I was also told they're starting to use stroke victims now for transplants as well. So you heard the news. You you took the offer. So did you throw everything in a bag and fly to John Hopkins? I, I threw what I could in a bag. <laughs> so I, my mom and I, we threw what we could in the bags. We got onto a flight, which is which was provided through Wings Flight of Hope. They are a private company here. They are volunteer pilots that that take people to, to wherever they need to go. Anybody with medical issues, they take them. Oh wow! Uh, so, for instance, somebody needs a, to get their organ transplant, they go ahead and they take them to where they need to go. This is a lot quicker and a lot safer than going through a commercial airline because, as you know, there's a lot of germs that can be carried in a commercial airline. Especially you don't want to get sick going to your transplant, <laughs> you know, catching a correct. cold in the air- airport. Correct. Their, their planes are equipped. They're, they're sterilized before the patient enters the plane. They're equipped with certain equipment if the patient needs it. Uh, nurses can go with them if necessary. It was just my mom and I. We went, got on the plane. We were there within the hour. We got to Hopkins, and they checked me in, admitted me, and I went through the whole process, the blood work, the infusion, everything. They did all that the night before. So you went into surgery, got the kidney, and what happened when you woke up? Well, see... It, the transplant was supposed to happen at 6.30 in the morning. 
did not happen. Um, so I ended up waiting until noon on the 19th of August. The process was a little scary for me. Uh, I'm not a fan of the OR. That is the one place I prefer not to go into. Um, <laughs> I'm with you. So, yeah, the anesthesiologist was very, you know, mindful of what concerns I had. She took into action. She said, you know, this is what we can do. We can give you something to calm you down before putting you out. I said, that's fine. No problem. So then I went out for surgery. The Some minor complications came up. I didn't have vessels on one side of my abdomen versus the other. So the surgeon had to close me up, reopen me back up, and did all his stuff that he had to do. I woke up. I was like, what the heck is going on? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, am I finally transplanted? Do I Do I have a working kidney? You know, am I putting out urine, um, things of that nature. So I was in a in an environment where I was kind of concerned, confused, like what's going on, you know, everything working okay. Parents, My parents come in their rooms. They said, you did great. You're doing good. You know, I put out 750 cc's of urine out first day. Wow. Uh, Liquid gold. Kidney up right away. <laughs> yes, <laughs> liquid gold is right. So, um, from there, a little bit more complication. Um, the transplant surgeon, while he was in, he had to prepare, repair, I'm sorry, repair part of my bowel. So, I had suture material wrapped around the aorta of the intestine, is what he told me. And so, I had, the worst thing I did not want was an NG tube. So, he had that. I was hooked to every little bit of machinery you can think of, IVs everywhere, an AV line, I've got a Foley, so everything's hooked up and connected to me. If you can imagine a hot wire in a car, this is what it looks like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I literally angle. had things at the at the head of my bed and things at the foot of my bed. I had every little piece of wire you can think of connected to me. <laughs> um, I got a great sense of humor. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, two two days later, I stopped producing urine. We're thinking, oh, great, here we go again. This is what's going to happen. Failure. We're thinking rejection. Of course, that's the first word you think of when you don't produce urine for two days. They found what's called a dilated ureter. And so what happens is urine backs up. The, the ureter kind of, you know, dilates and the bladder can't hold the urine. So my bladder was super small. So imagine an 11-month-old bladder at this point. <laughs> well, Only and, about a teaspoon of urine was making it. Well, and the thing is, is that I had the problem too. When I was um, had my third transplant, I hadn't used my, you know, bladder for almost 12 years. And it, right. uh, the ureters are kind of atrophied and don't work that well. And so right. once the kidney starts working, they don't, often know how to handle it <laughs> and have right, right. leaks and mine had leaks and everything else going on they had to fix after the transplant right for me though my bladder was so atrophy i haven't used it in over 20 years right a baby bladder <laughs> yes yes the baby bladder yeah um so they had to place what's called a nephrostomy tube in mm-hmm. to uh relieve the urine and allow my bladder to kind of adjust, learn to expand, 
And eventually, that nephrostomy tube was already, is now removed. I've got it removed. It's gone. It's been gone since July. Um, so for so, the first, so for the first year of your transplant after you left the hospital, what was it like to be able to? Um, we well, had a couple of things you had to deal with. You had to deal with this small bladder, so you had to uh, be close to the bathroom, or you couldn't go very far, or did you have a bag to help you? Okay. Well, at first, that's what that's what the nephrostomy is. It's a bag. It's an external drain. Um, so I was literally peeing in a bag for about eleven months total. Mm-hmm. I actually used this tube to train my bladder. Not due to the doctor's knowledge, I knew kind of just thinking about it for a second. Talked to the transplant surgeon. I said, look, can I use this tube to train the bladder? He goes, you're so smart. How did you come up with this? I said, <laughs> you know, I've got a working kidney. You've got the bag connected. I can just shut off the clamp, and then it goes right to my bladder, and I can start training the bladder then. He goes, yeah, go ahead and do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get um, to bill yourself all, and co- collect the payment? Yeah, yeah, I know, right? So then now I'm also on bladder relaxants, which I'm trying mm-hmm. to wean myself off of. Ditropan. Slowly. Yep. I was on that, too. I was on something called Ditropan to do the same thing, and it, it helps your bladder from spasming so you can hold your urine longer to make your bladder bigger. So is your how big is your bladder now? I am somewhere between urine output being 250 to 300 cc's at this point. Okay. So how many so, hours can you go? Uh, a max, I can go... Between three and five hours is my max. That's pretty. That's pretty amazing, Jesse. Yeah, (laughs) that's because of my work. I've learned to expand it, and I've had to have a little bit of control. If I drink something too fast, I know I'm going to be running to the bathroom. So I have to learn. You can't take your fluid in too fast because, well, now you got a filter in place. You have a working filter. You can't do it too fast because then there you go. You're going to have to be. Um, and so, so what was it like to be able to eat what you want now? Because for years you were on a restricted diet. Oh, uh, you have no idea. <laughs> um, having a menagerie of things to try from not having limits on dairy products anymore. So you had to watch your phosphorus when you're on dialysis. So being able to drink a full glass of milk with no problem was amazing. To to know, okay, no limits. All right, I'm just going to pee it out anyway. To eating french fries if I want them. If I want to eat something that I wasn't supposed to before. So I'm a big fruit fanatic. I love bananas. That's one of the first things that I was looking for was getting a banana. (laughs) So... (laughs) I also like cantaloupe. I couldn't have a lot of cantaloupe before, and now I can without limit. Having no limits is is wonderful. Um, for 29 years, that's what I did, restricted. I couldn't drink as much as I wanted. I had to watch every little thing, potassium, phosphorus, sodium, all that stuff. Now it's just like, okay, what do I want to eat today? And I'll figure it out. As long as it's healthy, I'm good. Well, I remember you posting a picture on Facebook, like my first Coca-Cola or something like that. Like, you know, you just didn't drink that when you're on dialysis because it's high in phosphorus. 
and you probably just why why start now, right? <laughs> if I've never had it, so. yeah. Well, I hadn't had Coke or Pepsi in years now because it caused also blood high blood pressure with me. So having Pepsi for the first time, I was on the fence about. I I was like, do I do I like it? Do I not like it? It took me a little bit to get adjusted to it. And eventually I was like, okay, Pepsi's okay again. <laughs> so did you prefer Pepsi or Coke? Pepsi. <laughs> okay, good to know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now what is your life like on a daily basis? You don't do dialysis every day. Do you feel like you have an extra week in the week? <laughs> um, I do have to tell you, my days get mixed up at times. You know, getting adjusted to a schedule where you don't have to go somewhere three days a week is kind of weird. The first time I came home and it was supposed to be a dialysis day, I go, what am I going to do today? I don't have to do anything. Um, But every two weeks, though, I go for infusions, and it's mainly Monday mornings I go, so that's usually something I know to go to. Um, I'm now job hunting for a medical assistant job, so I'm basically home all day, so I try to get out of the house where I can. But it's it's freeing. I can travel now. I don't have to worry about oh, where am I going to set up dialysis at and stuff like that. It's, it's your three day a week routine becomes oh, what am I going to do today? Now, what is your creatinine? What are your labs? Um, I don't know what my recent creatinine is. I just had blood work this past week, but the week before it was only at one point three three. I mean, it's good. That's um, great. That's not, fantastic. Yeah, it's good. It's not high, so I'm not worried about that. What about your blood pressure? Blood pressure is excellent. Um, I take metoprolol in case. I mean, if the reading is not what I like, I take the pill. But consistently, I haven't had to take it, really. It's a rare occasion now. So oh, That's wonderful. And do you take any Lasix, or is the kidney producing urine on its own now? Kidney is producing urine right out of the gate, right on its own, still still doing so. So wow. no Lasix is needed at this point. Well, I bet you your doctors are just so optimistic and excited about your success of this transplant. You, you are a walking miracle. Yeah, they. my transplant surgeon was quite intrigued, I do have to say. Um, funny thing is, when I got the call, he did the blood work, you know, how you do the pre-op blood work. He looked at this blood work and said, I had to take a look at that three times just about. I go, my parents were telling me the story. I go, why is that? And they go, he was quite intrigued by this, that you are a perfect match to this kidney. It's a it's a perfect fit. I go, yeah. that's, that's weird. Like, how do you find a random person that's a perfect match <laughs> to somebody like myself? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, they have a six but antigen said- match. You just got a six antigen match. I know you're a little smaller than me, and you know the surgeon also probably was like, uh, "It's hard to get a kidney when you're small because they gotta push it in with the other stuff, and you don't have a lot of room." So, uh, right. you know, that's one of the complications of being tiny and having more than one transplant. Um, but it just sounds fabulous. Yeah. So how how is your family responding, and uh, what's life like now, and what do you hope for the future? Uh, well, my my family is quite a supportive network. Um, both my parents, whom I live with right now, have been quite supportive. They were kind of 
confused at first, too, I guess you can say, because they've had to follow the same diet as I've had to follow. They're like, oh, Jess can have this. Now, okay, let's have this for dinner or whatever you want to say. They're they're kind of stunned. A lot of friends of mine are like, we're not used to you saying, I have to pee. <laughs> <laughs> I go, well, it's new. It's, it's, a, it's part of my life now. And then... Um, my family was quite ecstatic that this happened. Uh, I literally lived with my sister in Maryland for six weeks and she watched my progress from the beginning and she, I, I would think she was excited and watching me drink, you know, she's seen me grow up. She knows, you know, she had to drink a small amount at a certain point and now to be able to drink nothing but, you know, eight ounce glasses to bigger. So... They're, everybody's quite ecstatic. Everybody's quite, you know, supportive of what's been going on. Um, even my best friend who made a wish when we were in first grade that I would get a kidney. Now, she kept this wish every birthday until I got the kidney. That was her wish. She She wanted that to happen. And so I got the call literally on her birthday. Oh, my goodness. That is an amazing story. Wow. What a wonderful friend. Yeah, um, she's um, she's known me since first grade. Um, and what is her name? put a sign on the back of her truck. What's her name? Her name is Mary Larrabee. <laughs> Let's give a shout-out to friends like Mary. Wow. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, friends like that are hard to find, aren't they? They're, they are, and especially when you have a medical condition like I've grown up to have. A lot of people are quite, you know, hesitant, reluctant to just, you know, get to know you. They they fear you, in other words. I don't know if that makes sense. They yes, fear it does. That you're different and we're facing our right. own mortality. And especially when you're younger, people just don't want to even think about that. And we're dealing with life right. and death and they're dealing with... You know, trying to get a date or, you know, where are they going to get, you know, where are they going to party this weekend or whatever the things are, but they're not in line. So it is harder to find um, people who want to invest and get to know you and accept you. Um, some people just, you know, move on. And it, it's actually kind of a, a good thing because it can keep some people who should never be your friends out of your life anyway, so you're not wasting that time True. if they're going to be that way. So in closing, yeah. Jesse, I, I want to know, what is since you can go out and eat at any restaurant, anything, what what restaurant, what type of, type of food is your favorite now? I, I'm a big pasta fan. Always <laughs> have been. Put a plate of spaghetti in front of me, not a problem. <laughs> um, I have always enjoyed Spaghetti, but of course, the pasta sauce was always the big thing. You know, potassium, I gotta watch it. Now I can just pile that sauce on, no problem. <laughs> so, well, that's, that's um, wonderful. I've always been a big pasta eater. Well, that's wonderful, Jesse. Um, we appreciate you sharing your story, and your your story is one of never giving up, being optimistic, and pursuing your dreams despite your medical obstacles of 29 years on dialysis. That uh-huh. is astounding. And now you're one year post-kidney transplant with great labs. So uh, just, yep. I guess, don't give up hope. And uh, I look forward to seeing you on Facebook and hearing about how your uh, future adventures pan out. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the future, too. I'm hoping for a job soon. I, I need to 
get employment now. Um, <laughs> but uh, everybody's been quite supportive of that, too. Um, again, going back to working with animals, now the transplant team was kind of hesitant because, you know, germs again. Well, you also in the medical field, you have germs. You know, medical field has germs, right. too. So, right. you know, I, you, you just yeah. have to be... You know, you have to, you know, use caution and but pursue your dreams. I mean, uh, when I first had my transplant, you know, right after my third one, they're like, oh, be careful. And I traveled all over. I mean, I got on airplanes all the time. I never actually got sick from being on an airplane, but I did take, you know, uh, I didn't touch my hands to my face, all the different things that you do to to not yeah. get Carry sanitizer with you, have a mask. Exactly. And and be rested. That's what I do. Be rested and eat well and keep your immune system up. And but also I think one of the parts of staying healthy is being happy. And if you're happy and enjoying life, you know, it it does help a little bit. So well, thank you, Jesse, for sharing your remarkable story. To be continued. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own healthcare provider regarding your medical condition.